What's up, everybody? Welcome or welcome to the Artists and Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, May 13th, 2022. Uh, I'm super excited you guys are here. I have, feel like it's been a long time since I kicked off the happy hour as the host. Shout out to Greg Kokio for taking care of last week's episode, man. You did a great job. Really appreciate you taking over the ones and twos from me. Um, and, you know, for everybody else who's been able to step up for me throughout the year, man, you guys are awesome. We really appreciate you, God, y'all. Um, also, a huge shout out to uh, our sponsor for today. It's going to be the MLOps World Machine Learning in Production Conference. Um, if you guys have not heard of this conference, definitely go and check this out. It's got a great, great lineup. You've got speakers there from Meta, Feast, Hugging Face, DoorDash, Yelp, Yahoo, Google, Spotify, Shopify, eBay, and so much more. It's taking place in Toronto. It's taking place June 9th, 10th, 11th. Uh, I will be there, and I hope you are there as well. I'll be hanging out uh, not only at the Packagerm booth, but I will be demoing the Packagerm product. Uh, just pray to the demo gods that you are kind to me and uh, don't mess up my live demo. Uh, while I'm out there doing it. But yeah, huge shout out to the MLOps World Conference. Thank you so much for being the sponsors of the Arts and Data Science Podcast. Look, if you're just a data scientist and you don't see an MLOps event as something that's for you, then I think you might be wrong because not only are we going to talk about MLOps at this conference, we're going to span topics ranging from AI ethics to model governance to team building strategy. And there's also an entire track dedicated to the business side of machine learning. Uh, these talks will leave you with golden nuggets of wisdom that will fast track your ability to build a data science practice with scalability in mind. So definitely go ahead and um, check this conference out. There will be a link in the show notes to the conference. Uh, and if you're in the room here i'll send a link to the conference right here in the chat use the discount code harpreet to the capital h for 15 percent off your ticket and if you do come please do not be shy come in say hi to me i'll be at the packing packing booth the entire time um also released an episode today on the podcast with the one and only dave langer dave langer where have you been man miss this guy that's awesome. It's been, been quite a while since we had Dave Ling on the show, but when I was first taking off these happy hours, he was an integral part uh, of, of just making it a amazing session. So Dave, thank you not only for coming onto the podcast um, uh, as, as, a, as a happy hour participant, but finally coming onto the show as a guest. So thank you for that. Um, there's a bunch of other episodes released uh, over the last few weeks that you should check out if you have not already. I spoke to Marcus Dusotoy. Um, Oxford University professor in mathematics. You might recognize him from a bunch of different shows in the BBC, uh, The History of Maths being one. Uh, he's also written a couple of uh, New York Times bestselling books. One of my all-time favorites is The Creativity Code. And this is a book about uh, essentially how deep learning can augment human creativity. Amazing book, definitely check it out. I've also, uh, a couple of weeks prior, released an episode with the people's data scientist himself, the one and only Mr. Danny Ma. That was a great conversation. Hope you guys check that out. I also did an episode with uh, the data professor, uh, Chan and Basanmat. That was released a couple of weeks ago, so go check that out. Also, Christina Stavopoulos was on the show, so do go and check that out. And I also did a uh, non-data science participant, non-data science related uh, episode with Natalie Nixon, Dr. Natalie Nixon. You talked all about 
creativity and, and how you can be more creative. So definitely great episodes. Go and check those out. Uh, apologize for any noise you're hearing in the background. Um, um, so look, we're going to kick off the conversation now. Here's, here's what I want to talk about, right? Everybody always talks about how 80-something uh, percent of data science initiatives fail. All right, cool. Like That, that happens. Shit happens, right? Um, but what about that 20% that actually do make it, right? So that 20% of data science initiatives that do succeed. What is so unique about them? And right off the bat, just, I want non-obvious answers only, right? Like, None of these are obvious answers like there was no alignment between the data science team and, and business stakeholders, or they try to build an overly complex model. Like those, those are obvious reasons why things would fail. What are some like non-obvious reasons things would fail? Whether it's systemic issues within the business, whether it's data science behavior or misbehavior. Um, yeah, what are some non-obvious reasons that a data science uh, initiative would fail? Um, Let's go through this question, but then after this question, just putting Vin on spotlight here, I do want to talk about recent posts you did about the, the layoffs and, and you know, there's been a huge amount of layoffs everywhere. Uh, should we be worried about data science, as data scientists about this, and, uh, you know, what's going to happen to the tech economy going forward? So I do want to talk to you about that in a little bit, Vin, but Vijay, if you don't mind, I'd like to go to you first for this. What is it? What's so special? What's so special about these 20-ish percent of data science initiatives that actually succeed. Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Can you hear me? Hey, okay, uh, loud and clear. Yep. Um, so happy to be here. Uh, this is my first time. I've been attempting to make this. So, um, so for me, I think uh, 20% uh, in my experience, um, uh, what has worked is the change management, right? So sometimes you have a solution but you know, certain situations, almost majority of situations was something you would bring, there's a change in the process, is sponsorship. How do you bring people together to adopt that? So adoption is really, really the key in my scenario. Um, and there have been situations where the POC looks good, and after that you, you know, implement it, there are not many takers, right? So I, I, can, I can tell you that having that change management to be part of that, also, you know, we are technical people. And one thing I have, I've noticed that what we think user will like, but user is totally different, right? You think this is a great solution we're building. You put it in front of them. They say, yeah, it looks good, but it's okay. If it looks good, let's go and implement it. And what we see there is that there's nobody using it, right? So there's a whole element of that is that how do you really understand what user want? What is the experience for them, right? Um, and so some of the regions I have seen those things really work well if you bring the user along with that uh, that you know journey of whatever the solution we are basically developing, right? So I would say the change management process that comes with is sponsorship. As things are changing, you have someone to basically make that happen. Users are part of the journey, uh, and of course you are addressing the real problem, right? So so think about you know, why do somebody would care about my model? You know, it might be a business problem, but if you go a set up group of people, is there, is, do people really care about that? Have we, have we really taken care of those, those um, needs that they're basically interested in, right? Another thing that I can see that very successful um, is that, and sometimes a problem never happens in isolation, right? 
So there's somebody upstream causing the problem and somebody downstream getting impacted. So when you look at the solution we are trying to solve, you want to bring those people as well part of the solution. So the impact is bigger. All of a sudden, there are a lot of people willing to adopt and, and, and making the contribution. So I've, let me stop there. Um, I think those are some of the things I've seen have worked really, really well, at least in my experience. Vijay, thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that insight. Um, let's go to Mikiko next. And then after Mikiko, let's go to Yin and then Tom. Uh, also, shout out to everybody else that's uh, hanging out in the room. Good to see all you guys here. It's been uh, some time. Gina Duarte, good to see you again. Russell Willis is in the building. Eric Tonga, Avery Smith has just entered the building. Good to have you here, Avery. Uh, also, Tom Myers as well. Thank you, Mikiko. Uh, thank you so much. Mikiko, let's hear from you. We'll go to Vin and then we'll go to Tom. Yeah, I guess I feel like the reason why some of these projects like succeed, and I know we said non-obvious answers, but I don't know, maybe this is not obvious or it is obvious. Sometimes it's like the people on the project. Um, actually, maybe that's a mean answer, but yeah, like sometimes it is, right? Sometimes you just don't have the skills capabilities yet to make a model in production work. So I think that is a re really real one. Um, I think a second one also, and I, and I wonder about this because when we think about like the ML engineering role, uh, sometimes it's kind of like, it feels like it's there to make up for a lack of investment in infrastructure and infrastructure teams. Because when I think about it, I kind of feel like if you treat models as sort of decomposable or kind of modular assets within like a product or service or platform, hypothetically, whatever model you work on shouldn't matter, like from a, will it succeed or won't it succeed? Um, so in that regard, like some companies, I feel like, I feel like they have ML engineers because they essentially don't want to put effort into infrastructure. Um, what I see in like really successful teams sometimes is you even don't have ML engineers, you have data scientists, and then you have like the ML ops or like data engineers or data ops teams who kind of work on stuff. And then essentially the data scientists kind of kick off a model or like, you know, they deploy the pipeline or whatever. And then there is like this system for which the model then goes down the cattle chute to then be like eaten or something enjoyed. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much, Mikiko. Appreciate that. Let's uh, let's hear from Ben. By the way, anyone listening, either on YouTube, LinkedIn, or even here in the chat, if you guys have any questions at all, please do not hesitate to drop your question right there in the chat. I will add it to the queue, and we will get you uh, get you some answers. Um, let's uh, let's hear from Ben uh, again. Just uh, the, the question we're talking about is uh, non-obvious reasons why only twenty percent of data science initiatives actually succeed. Non-obvious answers only. So nothing about uh, overcomplicated models, nothing about no alignment between business and, and data science teams, just completely non-obvious answers. Uh, let's go to Vin uh, and uh, Avery, if you want to chime in, let me know. Russell, if you guys want to chime in, uh, let me know, uh, just like raise your hand or whatever. Um, let's go to Vin and then Tom. Yeah, I think th there's been a couple of studies that I've seen where they asked, companies with data science teams, you know, have you put anything in production yet? 
and somewhere between 70 and 80 percent are like uh what so that's one you know one reason is and i think vj and makiko both hit on this it like they can't get it into production it's kind of crazy to think that there are that many companies out there that have data science teams and they just like they've never made it that that last mile like yeah. i've heard people call it the last mile problem in ai and so that's one huge reason. The other one that I see so often is you've got to prepare users for models. It doesn't work like software does. Software is, it works. You know, it'll do the same thing. At least when I code it, it works. It'll do the same thing every single time. And, you know, as long as it stays within the specification of what it's supposed to do, it'll work. But models don't. Models will behave erratically. You can ask models to do stuff that you can't. I mean, think about Alexa. If you ask Alexa a question, you know, like the weather, she's always going to give you a good answer. But, you know, you don't have a specification for what you can ask Alexa. You could ask her a ton of stuff, but you start getting to the edges, like where can I find green jelly beans? Maybe she gets you an answer. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. So here's like a picture of one. (laughs) But, you know, and so, and that's the cool thing about models is that you never know, you might find some new ways to work with them, new ways to collaborate. And and I mean, human machine teaming is actually becoming a thing, but if you don't tell users, like this will not work every single time the way you expect it to, they get it. It doesn't work. They stop trusting it. They get rid of it. Yeah. Love it. Thank you very much. Um, and if Alexa were to answer anywhere other than the Jelly Belly Factory, I'd be very, very upset as a Northern California native. <laughs> uh, Jelly Belly Factory is right down the street, right there in Vallejo. Uh, shout out to uh, Tom Ives. Let's hear from you. And if anybody else wants to uh, you know, chime in on this question, by all means, just, like, just uh, raise your hand, let me know, uh, let me know in the chat, and uh, we'll get you added to the queue. Tom, go for it. Slow to get off mute there. So this is a real uh, pain point question for me for two reasons. I'm a freaking idiot is the first reason. The second reason is, hey, Avery, you didn't need need to agree so strongly on that, dude. No, but the second one is, uh, is just poor collaboration. Now, let me me address both of them. First, If you're an expert entrepreneur, you will never make the mistake of developing something the market doesn't want. Yeah. But <clears throat> because we love cool things and we've got great ideas, at least according to ourselves, we'll go off and build something that not only does no one know how to use, but they don't even want to use it. And I learned the hard way, okay, I want to go talk to stakeholders and get a feel for what's perceived to be most needed and then build that. And it might actually help your ratings in your job and, you know, make you a hero at your business. So I had to learn all that the hard way. But even if you are working on something that you think's not glorious and you do a good job at it, you will become a hero if you're good at frequently checking in, hey, I'm not all the way there to what you asked me to do, but this is where I'm at. Do you feel like it's on track? And I have been shocked every time where people go, 
this is amazing. You've gotten that far already. And wait, this is nothing. It's amazing. I don't know if you guys are this way, but I'll put my bar here and people only wanted me to reach here. And they would have thought that was a home run. And I've had to learn that so much. But the other thing <clears throat> is if you're doing good collaboration like that with the business to find out what they think's needed data-wise, you'll find you don't always need a model, just a good automated report on something, not even a full dashboard. You're just giving them frequent updates on data. And then I've also just seen, you don't always need machine learning. Uh, let me explain this. We go through a lot of data processing just to get to machine learning. But along the way, if you're doing it very pristinely, you are going to reduce it down to essential features and you're gonna scale those features, get them on the same level playing field. And then you're gonna be able to present whether you use a simple model or not, this is the Pareto of feature importance. Now, if you think about modeling in general, the organization appreciating the Pareto of importance of features is much more valuable than telling them you're about to hit a pothole. Oh, wait, you're saying we could go down a whole new road and avoid all the potholes just by understanding these feature Pareto importances, yeah. So in other words, all I'm saying is don't rush to giving predictions to the business. Tell them I'm doing this pipeline, I'm doing this data processing, here's a Pareto of feature importances. I would think that's more valuable to you than the predictions, but I'm gonna give you the predictions too. But then I, I agree with the other things that are said. Infrastructure is everything. So if you can get it in production, well, that helps, but don't aim to develop something for production unless you know people have asked for it and are anticipating it and are wanting to use it once you give it to them. When we talk about creator, you just mean like the 20% of whatever that gives 80% of themselves. Ah, thanks for clarifying. So you're going through develop your, your, you're going through the machine learning pipeline, which means you've got your data cleansing routines automated. You are making sure you've looked at your distributions for each feature and you've applied appropriately, appropriate scaling routines to all of them so that they're all on the same numerical level. At a certain point, you're gonna find out which features are collinear, you're gonna keep the, of the collinear groups, you're gonna keep the most important feature. Now you're gonna have your base set of features that are most important, and you're gonna be able to use feature engineering on those, et cetera. But at a certain point in that process, you will get to see this feature influences this prediction the most, and this feature the second most, and this feature the third most, and just from my business activities, if I had a data science come and tell me, hey, I've got these predictions, but I've also got the relative importance of the features in the model, I'd say, I wanna see the relative importance of the features more than I wanna see the predictions. Because I can go work 
to act on that understanding of those features. It's different. It is, I say the term Pareto, all I mean is this feature is most important, this feature second most important, this feature's third most important to this variable you're trying to predict. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate that. Um, yes, Vijay, uh, if you'd like to add to this, please do. You are currently on mute. Yeah, no problem. So while you're How about now? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Good. Um, Good. So, so one thing I wanted to add, which is really a very critical piece is, you know, one thing that we want to be doing anytime we develop the model, we're talking about the prediction or any type of analytical solution is, um, end of the day, it's all about decision-making, right? So I think it, what I have found is, is a very fascinated users, if they can get insights that can make them in decision-making process, all of a sudden your adoption basically goes, goes higher in those situations as well. So I, I think it should be part of the solution exactly how the users is going to you know, use that information that can help them in the decision-making process, no matter where they are part of the process. So I think that can add the element is, is that if it is helping them in the any way decision-making process, likelihood of that being adopted is much, much higher. Thank you very much. Great, I really appreciate everyone's insights here. Um, for those of you just joining in, just tuning in on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Twitch, wherever it is, it is not. Uh, first few minutes of this conversation, we're just talking about why, what's so special, what's so unique, what are some non-obvious reasons why only 20% of data science projects seem to succeed. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing more, uh, then do not worry, this podcast episode is recorded, it's on our YouTube channel, so go and subscribe to the Arts Data on YouTube. It's also going to be published on the podcast in just a couple of days. So keep an eye out for that. All right, cool. So let's go and um, hear from Vin Vashista. Vin, let's hear from you uh, about the coming recession, man. Uh, you had this post that came out that was kind of talking about the uh, bunch of layoffs, really, that we've been having over the last few weeks. Like, why all at once? Why is everything happening all of a sudden? Like, do these companies work together and just say, we're just going to flood the talent pool? Um, but yeah, talk to us about that. And then if anybody has any insight on this, uh, anything to share, anything to, to add, please let me know. Then take it away. It's been running, I hate to say this, but it's kind of been building up since last year. Uh, around summertime, there were, I think everybody figured out at the same time that they were, their growth numbers were starting to decline. And it was really led by sort of the attention economy companies. So social media, streaming, they were the ones who saw it coming. And a lot of it's a correction. It's a return to uh, sort of pre-COVID numbers. Everybody went nuts during COVID. Anything digital, anything technology. We had a ton of digital transformation spend get pulled into two years that should have been really spread out over five or six years. And so everybody's stock price went stupid. And I mean, legitimately, if you look at valuations, they were insanity. Like the numbers didn't make any sense. And so that started slowly decomposing and falling apart. And what's really been supporting a lot of the hiring sprees are the access to really, really cheap cash. 
And everyone's valuations were so high that it was like they couldn't do anything wrong. The stock price kept going up. It didn't matter if they were their initiatives were returning a ton of money or if you know a lot of the speculative stuff just wasn't working out. And that's where we were at the end of last year. And then everything, beginning of this year, just valuations came back to, it's like everybody kind of realized, oh yeah, like companies have to make money. Oh, and we've invested a ton of money in companies that don't have a path to profitability. Like Uber just came out and said, yeah, we may never be profitable. Yeah, That's just one of those, what? <laughs> you know, the, you put that in a, in a quarterly report and just, it's mind bending. And that's really where we've come back down to is this reset to reality where profitability is now extremely important. So when you look at, yeah, dot-com bust, and it's funny, I, I'm hearing a lot of people say dot-com bust, but I don't think this is going to be that severe. I think this is just one of those, you know, speed bumps. Crypto's got a lot of troubles bringing, and that's kind of what they call a contagion, where a lot of tech companies have investments in crypto. And so when crypto starts unwinding, those investments go from break even, you know, not really dragging the company down too much to all of a sudden now they are. And so they're looking longer term at, you know, getting return on investment from their crypto investments. Metaverse is slowing down. And I mean, everybody was saying we're going to see a slowdown in the metaverse. There's going to be a bust. And then in two or three years, that's when it's going to be the massive opportunity. And the, you know, and right now the Amazons and Facebooks of the metaverse are being built you know, right now, but they're still two, three, four years down the road. And it's like every investor just didn't listen. And so what's happening now is we're having this decompression where companies' stock prices have been destroyed. And I mean, I made a joke about this on Twitter. You know, if you miss earnings, your stock price gets pummeled. If you miss earn or if you make earnings and lo issue lower guidance, your stock gets pummeled. If you make earnings, maintain guidance, Everybody that's been looking for a way to get out of your stock sells your stock and your stock gets pummeled. <laughs> it's just, there's no win at this point. And that's what, you know, it's these macro factors and these bigger economic factors. That is what all of these technology companies are reacting to. And there's a trickle down effect into more pragmatic businesses, your more legacy business models, as other competitors are slowing down on the really big, really ambitious data science and machine learning projects that are break even maybe two years, three years down the road as they begin to slow down investment because your investors want to see revenue and free cash flow now. So as that investment slows down, everyone is really doing the same thing and resetting and saying, okay, I need growth and free cash flow within the next six months or my stock price is gonna get destroyed and the board's gonna fire me. That is what every C-suiter right now is thinking is how much runway do I have with all of these investments that I put a ton of cash into before the board starts questioning my leadership and my inability to begin to improve margins and begin to show short-term returns on data science. That's where we're in trouble. That is where you're going to see a whole lot of data science teams start taking a hit and start seeing downsizing and layoffs. I've had four people or four companies reach out to me about they call it right sizing or, you know, it's really downsizing by a cooler name. I have had one of those in five years before that. So that gives you an idea of sentiment. Everyone is thinking about from a business standpoint, if the business unit is not profitable, 
How do I begin to wind down pieces of it? How do I begin to reduce costs? And we start out by, I mean, the good leaders are going to start reducing budget. Like we're going to close positions. We're going to reduce the amount of money that we spend on software and infrastructure. We're going to close down the travel, you know, no more expensing dinner, you know, but that's only going to last you for about three months. And then we're going to have to start laying people off. And you're going to see it, you know, at every single tech company. And then there'll be a trickle down effect. And it's more pragmatic companies that really overspend. And they have really profitable data science teams that they're not going to touch. Those are going to be, you know, those are the golden geese that have been performing for them. But they've been speculating and saying, you know, here's a three-year bet or here's a five-year bet. And so those are the teams that are going to take a hit. Any team right now that is not profitable, you know, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm telling a lot of people, treat your team like a startup with three months of revenue left, you know, and that's really how you should be running your team is if you can't get to profitability in three months, there's going to be some pain. Man, I have like so, so many questions that are no restriction. Take this, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's just, let's take it in this direction. So, we're talking just now talking about teams getting getting let go, getting cut off. Um, what are the qualities of those teams that end up getting let go and, and you know, cut off? Is it a lack of capabilities issue for the team? It, it, does it have anything to do with the team at all? Like, like what's what are some qualities of, of like? Let's say you are a company, an organization, you've got several data science teams it's time to make cuts data scientists are expensive we need to go there and, and just reduce the expenses um which one of my teams are cut? right now what companies are leaning towards is just looking at profitability how much revenue does this team generate uh, because if you do cost saving initiatives the problem is you don't need to maintain a cost savings initiative once it's deployed to production and it's stabilized there's a level of reliability to it you don't need the data science team to maintain it anymore. You can have a team of analysts, maybe even a couple of ML engineers who can maintain a large number of cost savings projects. And so it's not really capability. You can be amazing at delivering, you know, these, these winners that preserve margins for the business. But if you don't have revenue attached to you, or if you don't have a, a good long pipeline of cost-saving projects that are, you know, you're working on that will continue to return significant cost savings to the business. That's when you're in the biggest trouble is because the, the C-suite for the most part doesn't truly understand exactly how you generate value, what opportunities they could be going after. And so there's a chasm of sort of value communication. Some data science teams and some leaders are really good at just hammering on, here's the value that I create, here's the value that I create. They have good quality CDOs or CDAOs or CDSs at the C-suite level who are, you know, again, hammering home value, 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 value. Those are the teams that are going to be much safer. And so it's a combination of capability, your roadmap and your leadership. So what you're looking for, you know, as far as a stable team is just that sort of trinity of things is that you're, working on main business problems, facing customers or whatever the business model, those mainline projects, you're supporting them, you're beginning to generate revenue, and you're very much 
you know, part of the conversation at the C-suite level, not, you know, director of VP. You have to have someone in it who's communicating with the C-suite and who's effectively advocating for you, who's, you know, consistently hammering home the value of the team and not allowing somebody else from another team to kind of take over the narrative and say, you know, this budget would probably be better spent in my team. And because that's what's happening in a few different companies right now is, the CTO is going, you know, that budget I've been staring at for a while. I know how I'm going to get some of that. And so you have to have an advocate too. And those are the three things I'd say I'd look for. Thank you so much. Um, if anybody has any follow-up questions or comments or wants to read up whatever Ben uh, has to say, go ahead, let me know in the comments on LinkedIn, on YouTube, Twitch, wherever it is you're watching here in the chat room, uh, if you got anything to add. Definitely feel free to raise your hand. And right now we've got Vijay with his hand up. So let's go to Vijay. That's Vijay with Gina. Um, and then, then I guess if nobody else has questions, the question I wanted to ask is, uh, and, and maybe we'll be able to get to it, but uh, I guess what, what happens like innovation when companies start stop spending money, right? Like that. That's what does that mean? What does that mean for technological innovation? Um, Let's go to Vijay, then we'll go to Gina. Uh, Avery said you had a funny analogy, so then we'll go, we'll go Vijay, Gina, and then Avery afterwards. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say, Ben, um, uh, you are spot on. And, and I just wanted to kind of come back with additional data points, what I have been notice, noticing. Uh, last week, uh, I, I was talking to someone, a senior up in one of the startup company, and they had to let go uh, around 30% of their product, data product teams. And I think the justification that was given and, and some of the folks who were kind of let go, completely surprised. I, I, it just came, they just couldn't believe it happened. And one of the justification was that, you know, okay, who's adding to the revenue, right? Product teams, the product is there, right? And you're not going to the next release. Let's survive with what we got. Let's keep the people who are kind of supporting the business and then we just go and cut it, right? So I think it comes down at this point of time is that, okay, who can support the business going forward, you know, to be alive? Anybody else? Sorry. So I just want to make a point that uh, that's exactly what is happening in the industry. At least two situations I have gotten to, to know Thank you very much. Uh, shout out to Joe Reese. Joe Reese is in the building. Good to see Joe. Shantan Tully has just joined us. Hey, uh, top topic of discussion that we're just uh, lifting off right now is just talking about all these recent uh, layoffs that have been happening at tech companies and what that means for data science and innovation kind of going forward and uh, just, just what implications that has on, on our field. Um, Gina, let's hear from you. And then if anybody has anything to uh, add or riff off of, please do let me know in the comments, raise your hand, uh, drop something to LinkedIn, chat or YouTube, and uh, I'll be happy to, uh, to get to you. Go for it, Gina. Cool, thanks. Um, yeah, so Vin answered uh, one of my questions in the chat, which was how are tools companies doing? Makes sense, uh, Then you're saying they're doing pretty well. So when we say tools companies, and you could probably articulate it better than me, but um, those kind of things that can sort of automate the data science and the pipeline building process, 
would you characterize it that way? Yep. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, and then Vin, both your posting and this discussion remind me of a few things. And it just it just tells you that we see the same cycles repeating in business often. So quite a ways back, I worked in for a solar division of a big roofing company. And at that time, solar was quite hot because California started the solar initiative which um, had some, I think, very well thought out incentive structures and, and um, subsidies for solar to be more widely installed. Meanwhile, the backdrop in the industry was that um, there was a lot going on in Germany, Spain, and elsewhere. And so prices were going up and up and up on cells, on solar cells. Um, there were shortages, which drove things up further. And then another backdrop was just the economy was so hot at that time that you know, things were going crazy. And then of course, when the housing market fell out, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff just stopped. So companies went into that cost cutting mode. And for a lot of people who were in solar, especially if they were trying to do existing home retrofits, that was really tough because people were funding it with all their home equity, you know, surplus. And then when the market just went, then there, those businesses just mostly cease to exist. But then guess what? After a while, people kind of got things sorted out. They got their, um, they got more innovative financing models, much more like buying a car, let's say, than just, um, than, you know, financing everything up front. And slowly but surely that industry built itself back. So once again, it's kind of a thing of, you know, people rushing in, it's like a, a land rush or a gold rush. And then there's a, the bubble burst, so those fall out. And then over time, that slow and gradual growth starts to happen. And that's where the sustainable growth comes from. And then one other point quickly is that I worked for a great big company and I had shifted roles into a worldwide organization. And when new leadership came into the company to a point been made in his uh, blog post, you know, watch out when new leadership comes in, especially if they're on a cost cutting thing. And Wall Street also tends to reward that. Oh, there's change and this company's too bloated and we got to cut people. And especially in a big company, if you don't have advocates or if you're a cost center and I was in a worldwide unit that was a cost center, even though we had long term uh, programs that I think would be really successful. The return on investment was a few years out. so. I mean, pretty much that, well, the whole group pretty much got cut. So, um, but I think the key points I wanted to make is just, these are cycles that we see again and again, and there's going to be fallout. So, um, you know, just a few anecdotes to underscore the point that it's where you're providing the value. That's the thing. Um, figure out how to do that no matter what. Gina, thank you very much. Uh, comment from one of my former colleagues at Price Industries, Juan Fortis, says solar was quite hot indeed. Uh, obviously, like there's a pun in there, thank you very much, Juan, appreciate that. Um, let's go to Avery, Avery said he got a funny analogy. Um, by the way, if you have a question, whether you're listening on YouTube or on LinkedIn or right here in the chat, uh, whether it's related to what we're talking about now or something else, feel free to let me know, we'll get to your questions. Uh, right now, we're just talking about the implications of this recent, uh, just this last week and all these tech layoffs, what that means for us as data scientists. And uh, maybe even 
what we could do to make sure that we are not one of those that get laid off. Um, let's go to Avery. Okay, so um, obviously kind of uh, interesting times. Stock market's not looking great. Obviously, these layoffs, not great. Um, I'm not really old enough to like remember 2008. I'm, I'm not old enough to remember the dot-com uh, bubble. But it's interesting because <clears throat> uh, before I started doing consulting, I worked as a data scientist for ExxonMobil. Obviously not a tech company. But in 2020, you can imagine when everyone was going digital and working at home, that was not good for oil and not good for ExxonMobil. So we had a lot of layoffs in 2020. Um, and I kind of, I guess I saw the opposite of like, if like Facebook and tech companies were, were getting more traffic and, you know, driving in more revenue, no one was driving and no one was flying. So Exxon was making a lot less money. And so we had a lot of layoffs while there's a lot of hiring at other companies. So a lot of people left and got jobs at like Amazon. So I think it all worked out for those people. Um, but what's interesting now is, so and our stock price pretty much halved. So most of the time when I was at Exxon, the stock price was like around $70. Um, and it got as low as $35 just because of COVID. And then also due to, there was kind of a conflict between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And anyways, that, that made gas prices and oil go down. And so a bunch of layoffs happened, right? Uh, but what's interesting now is if you go look at the Exxon stock price, um, we're close to a five-year high. And my, my point just bringing this is it's, it's kind of funny. And I know oil is much more cyclical than tech, you know, but obviously this stuff happens and uh, like, even though like Exxon was down, you know, two years ago and tech was up and now it's kind of flip-flopped a little bit and all of a sudden like Exxon's hiring. I, I think these things sometimes like they just kind of happen, right? And I don't think, um, at least I'm not personally too too worried about it um, because, you know, give it a year, give it two years, give it three years. I'm sure, I'm sure maybe, maybe, maybe um, what Vin said is also true that like we were already kind of, this is just a correction down. It's not necessarily like a, a, a big swoop. Um, but I just think in all businesses, there's, there's good times and there's bad times. And I don't, I don't think at least for an industry wide, there's too much to worry about maybe more specifically, uh, like for instance, I don't really believe in Facebook too much meta or whatever. Um, that may be their, their, their hiring freezes might be a little bit more, uh, worrisome, but I think as an industry, there's the ups and the downs. And my point is when, when one, when one year you're down, the next year you're up. So I'm not too worried about it personally. Avery, thank you very much. Even though you might not be old enough to remember 2008 or 2000, you are definitely old enough to make me feel old. Uh, so just for context, uh, uh, you're talking about Exxon stock. I was just looking it up right now. March 20th, 2020. Uh, so just a little over two years ago, it was at 32 bucks. And today it's at like almost 89 bucks. That's, that's wild. That's crazy. Um, Oil was also negative back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's hear from you, Joe. Let's uh, uh, go, go for it. Yeah, I think the, the thing I'd be paying attention to is just, um, you know, the rates, interest rates. That's what kind of drives everything. A really good book you should read, actually, is um, Dot Con, um, How America, um, I don't know. It, it's basically, I can't remember the, uh, the, the subtitle of it, but it, it was written back in 2002, and it's about the uh, Dot Com crash. It is, and, and I, I read it a few weeks ago, and I, I think it's eerie how many similarities there are um, in the dot-com bubble to today. And I won't get into specifics. I think that, that I'll talk about what's changed and what's the same. Um, but first of all, what's the same? The, the a ton of speculation um, on 
companies that basically made very little revenue, or if they did, then made very little of these other weird things called profits. Um, but because there was uh, basically excessive money, um, you know, in, in the system. And so, you know, it was, it was easy to get money, easy to, for um, investors to deploy capital. And the other thing that was really big at the time was uh, um, online day trading was what had become a thing that had never happened before. And so for the first time you had um, the middle class had access to uh, spending an enormous amount of money. Um, yes, that's the book there. Yep. Uh, just posted in the chat. So, you, you know, and so you, this, this confluence of stuff led just a, a huge amount of capital to fund pretty crazy ideas. Uh, I think what's, you know, then, then that party was brought to a halt by one um, excessive speculation, which always ends badly in the end. And then uh, the Fed raising rates um, because there was uh, surprise, surprise, um, hints at inflation going on, right? And mismatch of supply and demand of um, specifically labor. And so fast forward to um, uh, the, fast, uh, you know, the financial crisis, very much a similar thing. Low rates, uh, easy money, chasing what again, this time houses. Uh, you know, it wasn't tech, but it was the same sort of speculative mania. Anyone who was around at that time, it was just, it was a crazy time. I mean, you saw your neighbors getting rich, just like you did the dot-com days. Uh, and the thing that always, I always look at is when you, when you feel like your neighbor's a moron, but your neighbor's making millions of dollars off of something, then you're like, am I the moron? And, you know, so that ended badly, but what happened was the fed lowered rates to near zero, you know, and that, that that's, you know, and I'd say for the last 13 years, that spawned what you what you've seen now. It was just a, a, a period of like insanely low rates, um, too much money chasing few two things. And what do you think happens? This is what happens. And then with COVID, what I mean, like I think over 40, 50% of the money supply was printed in about a, like a matter of a few weeks. So think about that. You know, I think Warren Buffett calculated um, you know, when I was at the Berkshire meeting a couple weeks ago, he said like basically seven thousand dollars for every man, woman, and child in America was printed. So think about what that does. So in the last couple of years with COVID, you've, you've had just an, an insane amount of money chasing too few things. That's why you have inflation. And so, but that means, well, what are you going to do about that? You got to raise rates. So that's the thing I'd be looking at. Now, of course, with the rates, it's very fascinating because I, I believe um, with Shamath here on the uh, All In podcast, uh, he had a good, good figure where it was like for every um, 1% increase in the Fed's rate, um, you can expect the, uh, basically a 15 to 20% markdown in valuations of um, startups. So if you get to a Fed's fund rate of maybe say three uh, percent, you know you're looking at a pretty nice haircut uh, coming from zero. So it's forty-five to sixty percent off. So think about what that does. So what I think is going to happen is you're going to see a ton of down rounds, and anyone who's lucky enough to get those, the rest are going to be either uh, purchased or um, probably die off. So that's I think what's going to be happening. So rates, you know, Warren Buffett always said, uh, you know, rates are the uh, uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's um, you know rates are, rates act as gravity on asset prices. It's as simple as that. So that's what's happening now, and it's, it's going to be pretty bad. So, but I think good things come out of this because you can't you just can't keep having this excessive speculative mania. It's insane. So anyway, thank you very much. No, no, appreciate that, Joe. Thanks so much. Um, talking about you know if if the neighbors are making ton of money, uh, I mean my office where you grew up where I did. They made the hundred ton money because they were in fact growing uh, Let's uh, let's go to Ben Vashista and then Shankar. If you got anything to add to this, please do let me know. I'd love to hear your perspective. Um, let's go to uh, let's go to Ben. Uh, Avi, thank you so much for for hanging out. Appreciate having you here. 
Yeah, I just wanted to real quick piggyback on what Joe said about the rates. The scary thing, and the reason why rates may go significantly higher than anyone expects is because right now the drivers of inflation, Fed doesn't control them. That's the real scary thing, is that we've got supply chain issues and we don't know how long it's going to take to unwind those. We've got these cartels that are, and I don't mean drug cartels, I mean like you know, there's not, whoops, I shouldn't use that word. Um, but there are non-competitive forces and non-competitive markets right now that are driving all sorts of different things, not just gas and energy, but a lot of technology segments are non-competitive. A lot of, you know, your staples are non-competitive segments. You look at cable TV, you look at telecom, there are so many non-competitive segments and it's going to take a long time because they're just jacking up prices not for true inflationary supply and demand reasons, but because they can, uh, you know, there's, there is a definite, I don't want to use crazy economic terms, but there's, you know, uh, demand is pretty stable for things like a cell phone or for a cable TV package or for, you know, a business to be able to get access to the internet and so on. And so demand is, you know, we'll pay whatever it's. And so that's driving a lot of inflation. And the Fed is under pressure by a whole bunch of people that don't seem to understand economics that are telling them, you know, raise the rates faster, faster, faster. And if they do, then the economy craters, like we have a recession. And right now, companies are preparing for a 12 to 18 month recession and not a huge one. They're thinking contraction is going to be small, mostly flat growth. And so if that, you know, if the Fed overreacts and listens to the opinions more than the data, Things could get a lot worse. And so the conditions, you know, that Joe was calling out where every time inflation or interest rates go up, you take a hit from a startup's perspective. It's really any tech company that takes a hit. And so you're going to see potentially more aggressive layoffs, accelerated, you know, reductions of spending. And those are going to hit data science teams really hard because if they're not profitable, the teams, you know, can get cut back to zero because if they're not making any money, you could lay the entire team off. And we've got a ton of people coming into the field at the same time as we probably are going to be letting go a lot of people who have never delivered to production. You know, when I was talking earlier about 60 to 70 to 80% of data science teams have never put anything to production We've got this really ugly potential, you know, perfect storm coming where our field, as secure as it is today, in a year and a half from now, we could be in a totally different place. Oh, a year and a half from now, things might change. The year and a half from now is the future. So what do we need to do to future self, future-proof ourselves against a layoff? It's Richland, uh, Shampoo now on this one. Uh, Greg Okio, shout out to you. Uh, it looks like you're driving or anything, so I don't want to... Bother you, I will keep you safe, but if, uh, by any means you got uh, anything to add, please do feel free to, uh, to, to hop off on mute and, uh, and, and get busy. But make driving safe here. Shout out to you. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, I just want to, I, I don't have comments on, on the stock market or the economy, but the reality is that layoffs happen sometimes in, in troves and sometimes sort of more randomly. Um, my general um, sort of feeling around this is that you have to be 
prepared, I guess, is, is a way, no matter how valuable you think you are um, to a company, to the company. Um, I just got a new puppy. She came running to me. I'll show you guys real quick. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So the best thing that you can do is always be networking always be you know making important connections um with folks uh, in your industry and you know just just be ready to you know have a plan b um be ready to um activate those those networks and and you know be ready to make a career switch uh in a short amount of time so just never be too comfortable i guess is is my advice shot that thank you very much um russell thanks for joining us uh uh, appreciate you being there. Greg, anything to add at this uh, topic about you know, all the recent layoffs that's happening in tech? Can, uh, can you guys hear me? Yep, yep, I'm clear. Yeah, so it's, uh, I was uh, more on the listening end of this, and I think Avery made a point in terms of like, uh, how bad is it going to be? Uh, in my opinion, is it going to be another 2008 where people like 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 really did something bad that affected like i can say the whole world um i i'm not too sure um but at the end of the day this this is a sign of you know uh re re i guess readjustment and is what in my opinion it should have been expected because we were doing so well, or a lot of companies were doing so well uh, when the um, when COVID hit, right? Um, the first announcement to me was, you know, Zillow, then Peloton, right? I don't remember like who did something about Peloton, but I was like, how can you be a CEO and know that you have an anomaly? You you consciously chose to go after that anomaly to uh, prioritize revenue and hence profit without knowing that once we were actively trying to solve this pandemic, things will get back to normal, thinking that you were going to remain an anomaly forever. So that was quite, you know, like, I don't understand how our greed can just overshadow things that could have been avoided with a simple, you know, data analytics or you know, uh, so so to Joe's point, um, you know, you, it makes you think that who's really the driver here? Like, is it really the Fed uh, fixing the interest rate or something beyond that? Right. Can we call it greed? I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But um, there are some forces that, you know, make us take decisions that we know can be fixed over the long term. Right. Oh, if the market crashes, somebody will profit either anyway and it will readjust itself, right? So uh, those are things that we should definitely keep an eye out on. For example, uh, on a personal side, I invest. Whether the market goes up or down, I invest, right? So I put a couple money, a couple of dollars uh, uh, um, uh, uh, here and there. Uh, and what that gives me is, I guess, peace of mind that this is a cycle, right? In these cycles, when things are bad, you see those layoffs, which are super unfortunate. And uh, to, I think, Vijay, your point too, is that who needs to go? Who's the most important person to stay? How do companies decide to do that? 
in my opinion, it's really culture culture driven. Um, in some companies, they say without a sales team, you can't make money. In some companies, without the innovation team, you can't do anything. In some other companies, without the ops team, you not you can't generate anything. So it's really culturally driven. But I've seen like teams that have um, the projects that could have been are typically affected first, right? So if it's like an idea that you had that could have like worked out, they, they go straight to it first and eliminate that and say, okay, we can take a pause because our competitors are going through the same thing. So let's delay that to next year, right? And that's what drives them. Let's say a competitor didn't really uh, eliminate any workforce. They're going straight on that innovative research or that stuff they would have probably swallowed that pill and go next to the next pocket, right? The next pocket could be some cost out project they may be having. Or oh, we, we hired too many people in the ops team. How can we go lean there, right? And then they go there, right? So it's kind of like everything. It's a combination of emotion, which is I'm adding greed to it, and then uh, uh, straight, you know, I, I would say strategic business kind of thing. But emotion is the leader there, and that's impregnated into, you know, the co company culture. Hopefully that made sense. Sorry, I said too much. No, no, I love it. Thank you, Greg. I was just thinking off that point about, you know, the, the innovation team. I mean, I wonder if that's like a place where companies would consider not cutting off because uh, we're going to need the innovation team to figure out how to do the work of all these people we just laid off. Uh, but yeah, do it for free or uh, reduce costs somehow. Uh, but anyways, let's go to uh, Joe Reese. Joe, let's hear from you. And by the way, if you're watching on LinkedIn, on YouTube, uh, on Twitch, if you're here in the, uh, in the chat and you got a question, please do let me know. I'm happy to take your question. Well, I mean, just following on Greg's point, I think he's, he's absolutely right. It's um, there's a lot of drivers, and a lot of them don't really end, ever make any sense. But um, but I guess I always do in hindsight, right? And that's why I, in the link I posted, I at least Zoom here a link to a book called Manias, Panics, and Crashes: A History of a Financial. Uh, um, uh, you know, crises. And, and what I think it behooves everyone to actually study this kind of stuff, because what you realize is there's nothing really new that's going on. More like we just keep making the some dumb mistake, same dumb mistakes over and over again. Um, and, you know, different versions of it, like you'll never repeat exactly the same mistake, but you'll, you'll the, the same behavior and the same sort of emotional frenzy will get you into a different type of disaster down the road. And and so it's, it's, it's really fascinating to, um, to watch. I think, you know, I, we, we saw this recently in the, in the whole, um, you know, in, the, in this recent tech boom, you know, startups and everyone, you know, how, how is it that based upon zero revenue, for example, or very little revenue, you know, you now have thousands of unicorns, companies that are worth over a billion dollars at a fundamental level that makes zero sense whatsoever, right? Like if you use a, you know, traditional, um, you know, financial uh, valuation models, that makes no sense at all. I, I, I say I saw valuations being done on um, the number of uh, GitHub stars and the number of people in people's Slack groups. And I, and, I, and I know people that have raised at valuations between, you know, close to $200 million and north of $1.5 billion based on no sales and uh, Slack um, member counts. So we'll see with that, but let that sink in as a, as a data point. And like, then and then you understand, then, then ask yourself, okay, so if these companies or, um, you know, maybe series B, series C, how are they going to raise money? Um, and, 
what's the future now that, uh, you know, valuations are most certainly getting marked down. So that's it. It's like uh, that companies getting valuations are based on Slack number user accounts. That's like the argument that uh, some websites had back in the 2000s. Home the eyeballs. Home the eyeballs. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, Joe, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, anybody have anything to uh, to add here? Feel free to let me know. Otherwise, I, I just had a question. I was, you know, playing out with snow for like Flake uh, today for the first time like ever. Uh, just literally going through the Hello World tutorial uh, packet internet integration that's uh, kicking off with Snowflake. We're launching that in just a few weeks. And uh, uh, like, what's the hype about Snowflake? Like, maybe I'm just not that prolific of a, of a SQL user to uh, to get it. What is it about Snowflake that people just just love? Um, would love to love to hear from you guys. Uh, did, did you got anything to add here about Snowflake? Uh, if not, I'd love to hear from uh, from Joe. Or Jonathan, or or Ben, or Tom, um, please let me know. Is there anything to add? Yeah, I was going to. So uh, earlier point, uh, I think Joe was making. You know, one thing that we we have seen this movie before, and feel like we never learned from it, right? And I think the one of the reason I can see is the emotions, right? When emotions get in the play, all your experience goes out of the window, and that's what is happening, frankly speaking, in in this one. And I. I just, I was thinking in my mind, how, how come we're still doing the same thing? We are in the same place. You burn, you know, if you have money in the stock market, you're losing money. How do you not learn it, right? So I think the emotions are definitely taking all the rational decision on how we behave and how we act, even at the company level as well to do that. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate all that. And you know what? There might be risks that these companies take, but you know, without these risks, we can't really drive yeah. innovation forward. Can we? Right? We got. We got to. We got to make all these kind of dumb decisions because that's how we keep pushing ourselves forward. Uh, but Tom, let's hear from you. Um, and after after this conversation, I really just want to know your guys' thoughts on Snowflake. So if you want to say something about Snowflake, let me know right down in the chat, uh, wherever you are. But, but Tom, let's hear from you. No, um, Gina asked an interesting question, and I noticed that um, I think it was Kostob, and we're 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 discussing something in the chat. But I'm really I have a thought, but I'm interested in others' thoughts. So as soon as you talk recession, you're worried about supporting your family, and it occurred to me, you know, Harpreet, you and I were recently looking for new roles, and we landed in places we love but really got me thinking about some of the questions in the chat. Where do you go job market wise as a data scientist if you want to stay recession proof? And it, it occurred to me, wow, I really like where I'm at, what we're working on, but it, it's not gonna suffer if the economy goes down. It, it's, uh, forgive this tangent, but one night recently, talking to the kids at dinner about why hay is important. And it got them thinking about, hey, pun intended, no hay, no pizza. Please make the connection. So <laughs> it occurs to me there are some domains, and I think Gina was bringing up the point in the chat, what do you think about these ML or 
data science tool companies, no arrows aimed at you, where you're at, Harpreet, but I guess it depends on what they're doing, how entrenched they are. I don't think data robots going away, for example. I, it just occurred to me, if it's a domain that's not gonna suffer because of the recession, you're probably in good shape, but yeah, which, which areas do we work in that tend to be less safe? I guess I would think a tools company that's very new may be really scared and someone that's serving an industry that it just is absolutely needed no matter the state of the economy, you're probably pretty safe, but that's a pretty simplified model. I'm very eager to hear the thoughts of others on that one. Excellent, excellent point, Tom. I think it's going to be jobs that require more creativity, right? Things that cannot be automated away, right? Like, for example, developer relations, for example, developer advocacy, I feel like is a job that, um, yeah, it's going to be affected by, you know, the, the tech industry and, and innovation being pushed forward, but uh, these are roles that are highly creative, yeah, they tend to see be viewed as cost centers, but um, the work that developer advocate, developer relations professional does can't be like automated. It can't, it's super, it's super specific knowledge, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's such a unique combination of skill sets that you can't go to school to become this type of person. And yet this type of person is highly leveraged. They're able to contribute uh, a ton of value with not a significant amount of effort. Um, but a lot of creativity there. Um, DJ, let's, uh, let's hear from you. If anybody else has anything to add, please do. Yeah, so I was going to say, um, so I'm in pharmaceutical industry, um, and that's where my expertise comes in. What I have found is in pharma, um, you know, economy goes down, up, right? People are, we're still not able to produce the medicine that we are basically want to give to the, you know, to the patients out there, there's unmet need. So uh, in a relative sense, I have seen that uh, life sciences companies do well, even the recession time, unless, unless their pipeline is dried and sales is going down, there are certain up that nature as well. But I can relate to one industry, which is pharmaceutical, uh, mostly uh, for majority of the companies, I think, they don't get impacted that much by these kind of changes. So that one thing comes to my mind. Thank you very much, Vin. Let's hear from you. As far as talking about what, you know, what industries are safe, what companies are safe, I think in the near term, just look at the cash position. You know, it's not even sector. It's not even, you know, really segment reason why a whole lot of startups right now are just dropping as many people as they can and getting as lean as they can is because they're assuming that they can't raise any more cash for the next probably two to three years. And so they're looking at how am I going to, you know, either reduce my costs or get a little bit more margin out, you know, can I raise prices? Do I have any pricing power? Can I, they're trying to survive three years. And so any company that's in a good cash position to make it through with stagnant growth or maybe a, you know, a small recession, like 2% 2 loss, 3% loss or contraction or whatever. 
yeah, you know, anybody that's got that kind of cash to survive that is probably in an okay shape. You're going to see layoffs no matter what. I mean, shareholders are going to almost almost force it because what you're seeing is institutions cycle out, short-term investments, investors are cycling in. They're the ones who always tell you to do the short-term things, like lay people off who you really shouldn't because you're going to need to just hire them in two years. So it would be cheaper just to keep them. But so you're going to see a little bit of short-term thinking at every company, but every company that has a cash position right now, that'll get them through the next two or three years is a good, you know, it's a good bet. The thing that I'm seeing probably about three years down the road is kind of Harpreet, what you're saying is they're going to stop investing in innovation. And the companies that stop investing in innovation are going to get leapfrogged by companies that continue to do it undercovers. And what you'll see is you can't talk to investors about the amount of money that you're actually spending on innovation. And so when we go into these sort of recessionary periods, some companies are smart and they keep the innovation pipeline going and they keep moving forward with these projects. They just slow it down a little bit. And they'll always couple it to short-term gains, short-term wins. They'll figure out how to spin off pieces of it that make profitability, you know, make it look like a normal business unit, even though under the covers, there's a lot of innovation going on. And those are the ones that come flying out of the gate. And what I think you're going to see is in three years, when those companies come out and they start really throwing out new and innovative product lines because growth is back, and it's okay to talk about long-term bets. Other companies are going to be so far behind because they couldn't do that, that there's just going to be a die-off. And I think what you saw happen to retail right after we came out of that first recession is what's going to happen just across industries. I think you're going to see like a retail die-off, but everywhere. So short-term safety is cash. Long-term safety is innovation and responsible innovation. And thanks so much. Uh, Shopland says here in the, in the uh, chat that the tech industry specifically is very simple. Two weeks ago, it was impossible to hire. Uh, now there are layoffs. So there's a lot of connection going on in the chat. If you guys want to be here in the room, you can check out http forward slash slash bit.ly. That's bit.ly forward slash adsoh. Love to have you guys here in the uh, half hour live and direct with us. Also again, a huge shout out to our sponsors, MLOps World Machine Learning Protection Conference uh, happening June 9th through June 10th or 11th, sorry, uh, in Toronto. There's a link to register for the event in the comments. Use the promo code HARPRE for the capital H, 15% off. Uh, let's go to Costa. Costa, good to hear from you, man. Good to, good to see you here. Uh, and then after Costa, we will go to uh, EJ. Yeah, I guess um, kind of on that. So I, I was I was taking a bit of a long, hard look at where my career is at. And like, this is maybe a year ago, right? Um, just over a year ago, where I started realizing that the robotics industry is kind of weird, right? The robotics industry is a high upfront capital investment. It, it just needs it, right? The sheer cost of manufacturing, of even prototyping the robots, the electronics that goes into it, um, very high capital investment up front. And typically you don't see that payoff until a number of years down the line because you need to reach a certain amount of scalability. Now I'm talking more field robotics than say um, process automation or say uh, you know industrial automation. But 
that's where I kind of looked at the field robotics industry and I went, okay, how do I, as a computer vision engineer, um, see that, like see this through where I'm going through this almost a lean patch economically where some small robotics teams are doing really well because they have a very specific job within say oil and gas, for example, where they're doing, uh, you know, there's, I can name one or two here in, in Sydney and they're doing really well, but the other robotics companies are struggling to find capital. They're struggling to, you know, and we started seeing this maybe just over a year ago in robotics. And now I think it's starting to hit the wider market. Um, and like, this is the first time, I mean, I've only been in the workforce since like 2016, 17, right? So I'm really new to all of this and I'm looking at this going, okay, so how does someone like me um, approach this behaviorally, right? What are the, we've seen, okay, so from a business perspective, like Ben was saying, if you focus on um, cash flow positive and you focus on essentially uh, how do you keep as much of your uh, R&D development for your future afloat, those are the key winning traits of a business. What are the key winning slash key losing traits of, a, of an individual? Um, like a junior engineer or a you know intermediate engineer, um, yeah, uh, that's behaviorally something that I don't know. I've never experienced. So I'm really curious what the room thinks. So, so the question is, uh, the, the the core question is, what is the quality of the individual, not not like the, the team or or whatever the quality of the individual that uh, make them valuable? Uh, yeah, like this that the actually uh no i had the previous comment i i had made already um so i addressed that actually yeah um so something let's let's hear back from you from you on this topic we're just talking about how to be future proof um uh so i guess kind of doubling down on, on post question there about just this quality that not only future-proof, but just invaluable. Sorry, you cut out a little bit for me. Um, what was the second part? Yeah, so Costa, correct me if I'm wrong, the question that you're asking is, what are the, the qualities of the individual contributor that will make them invaluable to an organization, right? Costa, did I get that? Or essentially, yeah. But I mean, maybe the easier question to answer is, what are those behaviors or qualities of an, of an independent contributor uh, that don't make them valuable or, or lose value quickly, right? That might be easier to answer than say, hey, this is what makes people super valuable, right? Because that can come in so many different shapes for different businesses. Um, I would say it's kind yeah. of the, the cardinal sins, really, like lethargy, sloth. Um, I mean, think of the qualities you, you like and you don't like in people, right? And then translate that to somebody you're paying good money to. Um, I mean, I, I would evaluate it through that lens. You know, if I, if I didn't like you before, I probably ain't going to like you now, for example. So, you know, and if you aren't, you know, and I'd say that, you know, to answer your original question, if, if you, um, you know, if, if you look at what the qualities of what makes somebody, I would say, indispensable, it, it's going above and beyond and trying to, you know, and focusing on keeping the business going and keeping the business, uh, you know, uh, growing preferably. Um, I mean, it, it can happen in recessions. I've, I've seen it myself. Um, but it really, you know, it takes a different quality where you're going above and beyond and trying to say, okay, well, maybe that's not in my department per se, but I'm definitely willing to pitch in and help. Like I, I'll keep that person around, you know, as long as possible, right? It's the people who are basically like, 
you know, phoning it in, um, you know, not making an extra effort. I would say like, if you think, you, you know, here's the deal, just cause you got a job, um, that with a certain job description and, and when times are tough, you're expected to do more. That's how it is. And if you can't do more, then I guess I'll either need to find somebody who can do more or I'll just start doing more with less. So, you know, it's just how, that's how I see it. And that's how I've operated, um, you know, in recessions in the past. So it, it very much as the eye is on like, what are you doing? What are you doing to help out? So I would just say like, make sure you're just busting your ass, showing what you know, your capabilities and making sure you just are indispensable. And that, that alone is going to get you, that gets you far in great economies. It gets you even further when, it, when times are tough. So. Joe, thanks very much. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to you. If anybody else has anything to add, please let me know. Uh, if you're here in the chat, if you're watching on LinkedIn or on YouTube or on Twitch, uh, and if you have questions, you know to drop them right there in the comments and we'll gladly get them. Jonathan, I go for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll push back on, on Joe's point just a little bit uh, <laughs> because it's, uh, you know, it's, of course, those those who will put in the extra effort um, are likely to get uh, recognized more. But at the same time, if we're putting that pressure on everyone, I mean, people have different priorities. Pe you know, people have different family needs and, you know, and things like that. And work-life balance is extremely important as well. So I... Um, I just don't think it's super healthy to, um, you know, just like put put all your all in um, to towards the goal of you know of, of your employer, and then um, you know even even if you survive, you know, the set of layoffs. Um, it, I don't I, I don't I don't think it, that's super worth it to like sacrifice other parts of your life um, to do that. Um, what I will agree. What I do agree vehemently on is um above if, if you mean by above and beyond like making um the impact of the work that you're doing um obvious and sort of connecting the dots between different different departments different needs and really you know rolling up uh what you're doing and to what the business is interested in that i fully agree with i just think that that can be done strategically rather than sort of um just you know working away at, at it well yeah i mean as an employer be smart about how you're uh you know, what you're demanding of people. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're more in agreement than we are in disagreement for sure. It, it's, you know, because because the thing is too, if you treat your employees like crap, the first thing you're going to do when the times get better is you're going to go somewhere else, right? So, and then you don't want that reputation, but at the same time, it's definitely, here's the deal. You get more is going to be asked of you. It's as simple as that. And like, you know, and I, I think it's interesting because the recent generation, I would say of like tech companies is coddled people i think to a, to a very uncomfortable degree to the point where it's like they don't understand what it's actually like when you have a downturn like i've been through many recessions at this point I, i've seen it and it's like this is there's peacetime and there's wartime this is wartime and unfortunately when it's wartime you know um bad things happen so and i, and I think the day the days of like you know the thing that irritated me back you know in the, the you know the last, the last 10 years this has been you know startups raising a bunch of money and you know ping pong tables and all this cute stuff kombucha on tap and like massage therapists coming to the office all this cool all this cute shit right i'm old school i don't care about that stuff you know as a boss i'm like here's expectations you know let's let's make a fair agreement on what what's expected of you that's it you know i'm not here to give you uh you know, you know free beer on fridays or something like that it's not my style it's just like you know we have we have an agreement you're here to work you know i'm here to help you grow your career that's it 
So yeah, I mean, it, it's proven too that that stuff doesn't really help the employee either. Nah, it's all bullshit. Seriously, it's stupid. So yeah. now, and, but the thing, the thing I was joking actually with with a Ken G about this because uh, we, we were trading a swag at my house, uh, like startup swag, and it's like, God, the really horrible thing is we're, we're about to see the swag apocalypse happen. Like all the, all the startup swag is going to go to disappear. And there's a lot of nice swag out there, but it's <laughs> like. You know, we're, we're trading socks with, with each other and uh, a bunch of other things. And it's like, yeah, it's, uh, I'm going to really miss these days. <laughs> so, so anyway, no, I think it's a great, it's a great point. You bring up Satona. I mean, it, it is, it is, I think, because at the end of the day, it, it's, it's easy. And I, and I've worked enough toxic environments where it was like, you know, in good times, your employer was just, you know, a total asshole to you, to be frank. Right. And it's like, they just abuse you. And in, in a bad time, it's like, yeah, what have you done for me today? Because if you ain't done nothing for today, then you can get out. So that's, I've had that happen. And I've left those places. I've, I left. I left a job in um, 2010 in like the, the depths of the uh, the Great Recession, um, you know, and I had a kid on the way. I had no option, but I was like, I know I got enough money and I got enough um, skills. I don't need to put up with this crap at all. So, you know, I think it's an extreme case, but, you know, it was it was bad enough for I was like, so I've had that happen. I've had I've had bosses that are just so, so toxic. I'm like, I'm not dealing with you, even though every rational person says I should deal with you. I'm not. So yeah, it's a great point. So Joe, I, I would say that, you know, being asked more for someone um, it's, it's, it's coming in a natural way in the sense that if you're letting some people go as a company, then you're asking someone to fill up the gap, right? So necessarily it is not going to be, Hey, you gone and that work is gone. There's some, something is happening. So people will be asked to do more actually. So it's a very natural kind of way asking for do to fill up those some of the gaps. Yeah, exactly. Just make it worth the people's while, though. I mean, under, I have empathy with them too. They're going through a lot. Yeah, indeed. Too. They got it. Yeah. So it's like don't just say, "Oh, you had more work to do. Have a nice day." It's like that's bad. So I think that that um, you know the, the pressure that comes from seeing your coworkers getting laid off, um, and then you know using that as a motivator to work harder and pick up the slack. I think that doesn't beget, you know, psychological safety at work. Um, yeah. I actually think that that's, if that's a strategy, it's, it's a bad one. Oh. It can be mishandled for sure. I've seen it. To, um, to the earlier question of what makes, uh, how can you make yourself more um, irreplaceable, irrepa- I guess, um, you know, and, uh, in, in, from, from what I see, um, it's much easier for senior engineers uh, to hang on to their jobs um, than, than junior engineers. So it's kind of an obvious one, um, upskill uh, and you know, try to um, communicate uh, the impact of your work, as I said before. Um, and then if you, um, even regardless of what level you're at in terms of seniority, um, like I said, uh, don't put all your eggs, eggs in one basket. I think it, it is important if you're if you're replaceable, company should be replaceable to you as well. Um, that's my message. Um, I'm happy to talk about snow, Snowflake when we get to that. By the way, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, we might even just need to take that one on offline. Uh, but thank you, Shantana. Thank you, Joe. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, some some of your points there. Just something off top of talking about how senior uh, engineers are are likely to be around longer than like junior engineers as a collective it's like almost like the Lindy effect type of thing just because somebody's been in the game for this much longer means you're going to stay in the game for at least that much longer right? um but yeah to, to coast of 
the question like that butchered completely was how do you make sure <laughs> or the question was like uh what do you have to do to make sure you get laid off type of thing and uh i would say it's like the tendency to be very very quick to start something but incredibly slow to finish something because that just leads you picking up things and feigning business and productivity when really you're not really focused on anything. You're just trying to give up the impression of you know, taking on this thing, taking on this thing, but really completing nothing and delivering zero value. Um, I think that is definitely a surefire way to, um, to put yourself on the, uh, the, the, the cutting board. Um, let's go to Costa and then Gina, uh, and then we'll see what other questions people have uh, and begin to, to wrap it up. By the way, if you have questions or comments, uh, please do let me know right there in the chat. Shout out to Tor. I haven't heard from Tor in a while. Or Tor's uh, got some great comments there on LinkedIn. Because um, the funny thing is that most people today, between 20 and 30 years old, do not understand or have experience with inflation rates and the impact. Uh, they think it's free money for a long time. Um, Tor also said, like Zad always says, it's hard. It is not hard to succeed. All you have to do is work hard, harder than others. Uh, to see in the chat. Can I just say a really uh, funny tidbit about yeah. inflation for like one second? So it's funny. I was um, hanging out with my, uh, um, my, my grandma the other day in uh, Omaha and it was, um, she, and she reminded me back in the, uh, back in the eighties, uh, early eighties, inflation was so bad that banks were giving you like a free shotgun to deposit your money in a bank. <laughs> like, <laughs> think about that. It was just, it's crazy on a lot of levels. So anyway, um, oh, go on. I I think Jen actually had her hand up before me. Uh, you're on mute, Hopri. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Gina, then, then Crystal. Right. Um, thanks. So, um, yeah, Joe, I, we're, we were practically neighbors growing up. I grew up in South Dakota. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a friend in Omaha right now. So, um, yeah, high school friend. So anyway, um, yeah, I, you know, not to be, you know, maybe I'm just crusty and cynical um, having a few years under my belt, but to echo the comment that uh, I guess Tor made, you know, um, the truth is like all these companies can say all this nice stuff about how they care about people and this and that and the other thing. But when the chips are down and when it's hitting the fan, yeah, you'll, you'll see. I, I totally agree with you, Santana. Don't get me wrong. I totally agree with you. And what I love about the next generation coming up is like, they seem to be quite serious about, look, you know what? I'm not going to give everything to a job. I'm not going to, you know, throw myself onto the fire for some job. I think that's a way healthier attitude than, let's say, some of the people, you know, in the thought process of my generation and the one before where it was like, you were your job in many respects. Um, at the same time, I, I just kind of want to inject, you know, yet another dose of realism as Joe has, that it's going to happen. And to some extent, low and, and like um, uh, Vide said, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, but um, it's natural that when, when there are layoffs and stuff, that people are going to be asked to pick up more. And then you have a decision to make. Your decision is, am I willing to do this? Or do I have other options? And if you have other options, or even if you don't, 
like Joe said, I mean, I've been in toxic work situations and sometimes it's like, look, I don't care. I need to leave because I need to like, I can't handle this anymore. And I've put up with a lot of stuff. I'm pretty tough that way, but you get to a point where it's just like, this is BS and I'm not doing it anymore. But all I'm saying is, is like, it's give and take. So we always have a choice, right? Even if our choice is to <laughs> jump off the cliff into the unknown, we do have a choice as far as whether or not we're going to stick it out. And I think as Joe was saying, and Ben too, this is where you find out what kind of people you're really dealing with in the workplace. And so if you have no other options, you stick it out. And then, uh, you know, as Ben and Joe were saying, the minute things get better, out. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to add that. Oh, and one other point, which is sometimes even working hard, um, even sometimes that's not enough. It depends on the organization, how political it is. I mentioned being in a very large company and people were laid off wholesale because there isn't enough of a connection between what any individual does, the value they add, what potential they have versus we got to lay people off. And so the people who landed in other positions tended to know other people. They'd been in the organization for a while. Anyway, that's just what I wanted to add. Gina, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so I, I just kind of wanted to gather a couple of thoughts from what I've heard from across the room, right? Um, we've kind of, I guess my generation, like I said, I've been in the workforce since 2016-17, right? Um, my generation of, of employees, essentially, we're, we've kind of been very lucky that we haven't seen a recession yet, much in the way that like the last couple of generations hasn't seen an all-out global war, right, in, in the last couple of decades. Like, this is not, we, we haven't seen a Vietnam War, we haven't seen a World War II in a very long time, thankfully, right? Um, and I guess the optimism that's kind of built into us is, while that's really powerful, can also be a weakness, right, if we don't back it up with resilience, is essentially what I'm hearing. Because, like Joe was saying, you can make that choice to leave a job even in a recession if you know that you've got the frugality and resilience to deal with the resources that you do have at hand. Um, and making those choices is the difficult part. So how do you, so I guess the, 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 my big takeaway from this is it all comes down to resilience, right? Comes down to resilience and understanding what your values are and how you're able to trade off your personal values, right? Um, and what your plan is, and, and resilience is partially comes with and like within some kind of end in sight, right? So if you are trading off your values, how do you get back to acting to your core values, right? Um, so that's kind of what I'm taking away from this. And uh, I mean, echoes kind of what Gina said as well. So I think where we need to balance that, how do we, how do we learn that resilience without losing that optimism is kind of going to be the key question for, uh, for me to take away from this. So that's going to be something I'm thinking about for the rest of the weekend. Thanks guys. I mean, the advice I'd give people is, um, I mean, especially when you're young in your career, start building a big pile of like F you money, you know, money goes a long ways to, uh, I, I, I think that's single-handedly the biggest thing you, could, you should be doing plus building your network, but it's like, um, you know, having money in the bank, having that, uh, kind of F you emergency fund means that you have options 
um, you have options to make a choice about like how you want to spend your time and who you want to spend it with. If you don't have options, um, you know, things are just a lot harder. I mean, we're all privileged. We work in tech, we get paid well on a bad day. We'll probably find work, right? Like you got good networks, all this other stuff. Most people ain't like that. You know, I mean, go, go talk to people. I mean, I, you know, I've run, I've run factories before, but we're, you know, people were like, they are making nothing, you know? And I, and I was like, you know, and I, I can't afford to pay you more. I'm sorry. That is what it is. And that sucks. I mean, I, I do feel for that situation, but it is what it is. And like those people don't have options. And I've worked in, you know, doing manual labor and stuff before. And that's kind of like the career that those, some people are in and they are not getting out of that, you know? And I don't think they, there's poor as a church mouse. That's kind of how it is. Like we got options. So it's like, if, and you have a, everyone here has a, a tremendous ability to, um, you know, as Gina says in the chat, amass cash reserves. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you, you know, however you do it, but it, I, that's my biggest advice is like, you know, build optionality. And especially when you're young in your career, um, and especially in the good times, it's tempting to go on to buy that Tesla. It's tempting to want to go and like spend it all on, you know, fancy trips and all the other fun stuff. And you can go ahead and do that. I would say once you have your bases covered where it's like, if something bad happens and it does, this should be a reminder things change in a dime, right? As, as Santona was pointing out in the chat a couple of weeks ago, everyone's like, it's so hard to find people. Well, it's going to get a lot easier. So, you know, but you know, if, if, if you got, if you get your bases covered, if you got a good network, if you got money, yeah, you can do what you want. Thank you for doing the Adam's funds. That's great. Joe, thanks so much. Then let's, uh, let's hear from you. Uh, uh, I time to go to my OG for this one. And if, uh, if nobody else has questions or uh, comments on, on, uh, on, on, Anything after this, we'll go ahead and start wrapping it up. Uh, Sean and I will call at you at seems like one on one to talk a bit about Snowflake and also maybe see what uh, astronomer and packing term can do together. That'd be pretty awesome. Joe, thanks for hanging out. Appreciate having you here. Vin, let's hear from you. Yeah, I think uh, the greatest line I've ever heard from a movie is anybody tells you money but doesn't buy happiness, doesn't have any. It's the truth. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a lie. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, what's the best position you can put yourself in? It's the one where, yeah, boiler room. <laughs> I had to edit out one of the words in that line, but yeah, it's, you know, if you put yourself in a position where you can start your own business, that's where you want to be because you begin to every day generate wealth for yourself and it's generational wealth. Having a business that you can pass on that has valuation and especially now when we see the M&A cycle that's going to happen, even companies like mine are getting offers. Like I, it, it's dumb what companies are trying to buy right now. They're trying to do aqua hires where they will buy a company just for its people because it has capable people and they haven't been able to hire the type of talent that they need and assemble the team. So they'll just buy a company. So if you, you know, if you want to talk about who's going to be most successful at the end of, in the middle of every recession, we have an uptick in business formation, business birth. This happened during COVID. If you look back to 2012, I mean, that's when I founded my business. If you look back to 2001, you know, and there are unicorns that keep showing up out of each one of these recessions. And it, you know, some people are coming out of college that are starting businesses that survive, do well. And, 
you know, not every business is going to be a unicorn. Many of the successful businesses that come out of each one of these are just businesses that do mid seven, low eight figures. And they slowly over a decade grow into something that's, you know, like I said, generational wealth. Now you have that money, you have that stability. Most of the, uh, the share of profit is not going to go to the employees. So when you talk about, you know, the value that's going to go to somebody, it's always going to the person who owns the business. And so when you talk about the best way that you can generate value for yourself, no matter where you go career-wise, it's always going to be creating your own business as the best possible way forward. And so if you're an employee right now, that's what you want to start building is entrepreneurial capabilities. You want to start building the ability to innovate with value. And this is all stuff you can do inside of a business. It'll make you super valuable to the business because you'll be able to talk to the C-suite in the C-suite's language. Their language is, I spend cash, how, you know, where am I going to get my return? And if you run your team like a startup, the C-suite's going to respect that. The C-suite's definitely going to move you forward. So if, even if you're in an early stage of your career, you know, if you run yourself and your projects like a startup, that's step one. You know, how fast can I generate some cash with what I'm doing right now? Is there something I could be doing for my team right now that would generate more cash? I should bring that up. You know, I should talk to somebody about that. Hey, I could be, you know, if I did this, it would bring up more cash. And it's not really, hey, this is cool technology. It's, hey, I can make you some more cash right here. You know, I see a, a small bag of cash. Can we go get it? And it's that type of hustle mentality. And I think, you know, because of your generation and your generation has the hustle mindset. You don't have the work ethic. And I think there's a difference that we have to start calling out. You guys have hustle culture. You have hustle mindset. You don't have the work ethic. And the two are different things. Hustle is completely different. And I, you know, and it really takes late Gen X, which is what I am. I'm that late 70s Gen X to kind of be able to bridge the two. And your generation is going to be super successful in companies that are run by people that are my age because we're able to understand where you're coming from. And we still have that kind of boomer work ethic that's built into us. So we have something to pass on to you about resilience and anti-fragility and a lot of these concepts that are going to turn your hustle culture and your ability to hustle into your ability to spin up a business of your own. And we're going to be, I mean, you're going to see CEOs my age start showing up where it's late 40s because that's the cycle that we're in. We've had a whole bunch of people retire early, just get out of the workforce during COVID. They said, you know what? This is so 100% not worth it. And you guys are actually killing CEOs that are in their 60s, like that traditional late 50s, early 60s CEO. You guys are absolutely destroying them. They, can't, they don't know what to do with you guys. So your entire generation is just pushing them out. And it's kind of forcing leadership. And that's what I was talking about. And that's the other thing that if you're young in your career, there are going to be gaps to lead. Like, especially in technology, people don't want to lead. They don't want to leave their technology skills behind. But if we don't have leaders with technical backgrounds, our companies aren't going to move forward. And so, you know, if those are, that's everything that I would hit. It's that hustle, you know, don't become a worker or a drone because you lose what's valuable about yourself. Stay hustle.
bustle and, and, you know, go after that next job, go after that next promotion because you're hustling for value and you expect value back. And that's the difference. You know, the drone mentality, the, the worker mentality that was, you know, I'm just going to work and work and work and someone is going to magically give me, you know, it's going to come to me because it's owed to me. And that's just not how it is anymore. And so you have that healthier hustle. Don't lose that at all. Whatever you do, no matter what people say, that's bad. No, keep the hustle. Lose the, you know, the work ethic, the, it'll come, you know, it'll come around to me someday. Become entrepreneurs, figure out value, you know, hack value quick, go into leadership, find your way through to leadership, find your way through in strategy. And really the aim, the end game, you're starting your own business, you know, spin off, start your own business, get bought by your old one. It, it's, you know, it's the recipe. Again, thank you so much. Uh, everybody sharing a lot of great advice here on pretty much how to be future-proof, how to be indispensable, uh, where to take your career, or what to do with yourself in your career. Uh, a lot of great advice. Thank you guys so much. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, be sure to tune into the episode that was released today with David Langer. Next week, I've got an interview releasing with Dr. David Spiegelhalter, author of The Art of Statistics. He's also been on the BBC numerous times. Um, hosting shows on statistics like the, uh, like the it's called the, the uh, I forgot the name of the show, but he's on like three or four of them. It's amazing. Uh, he's a professor at the uh, Cambridge University or University of Cambridge. I don't know what the fuck they say in English, man. Uh, but yeah, one of those prestigious English universities. He's, he's there. Um, had a great conversation with him. Um, he was actually drinking a beer while talking to me, which I thought was pretty damn cool. Uh, then after that, we've got an interview that's releasing with Nick Singh, the one and only Nick Singh, author of Ace the Day of Science Maybe. So be sure to check that out. Uh, and then I've got just like four or five more brand new episodes being released. And then I'm going back into the archives and sending out old ones because I've been doing this thing for I don't know how long. Uh, a lot. It's, it's been a lot of... Uh, 245 published episodes in, in just over two years. There's a lot of content back there that I'm going to be re-releasing um, because I'm out of uh, I'm out of new shit to release because I have not recorded a podcast episode since uh, uh, early December. Um, so yeah, it's, been, it's been a while since I recorded an actual interview, uh, but I had that much of a backlog. Hopefully my basement gets fixed soon. I get all my equipment back and then I can go back to recording podcast episodes, but I will be going back to the archives and just pulling out some good stuff and re-releasing that. Um, I know there's probably only one or two of you that have listened to every single podcast episode. I know Antti is definitely one of them. Uh, probably the only one. Uh, I don't know who else listens. If, if you have listened to all of my episodes, please send me a message. I want to know who you are. Uh, you, you deserve like a virtual high five from me. Uh, and I just would love to hear the feedback. But uh, yeah, 245 episodes. Holy shit, man. That's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. Um, guys, that's it for this one. Take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Have a good rest of uh, your day if you're listening to this on a weekday morning. I don't know if this is recorded. So yeah, you can just here. Um, if you're going to be in Toronto on June 9th, 10th, 11th, I'll be at the MLOps World Conference doing my very first live talk, live demo representing Team Pachyderm. Shout out to the Analog World Conference for sponsoring this episode. 
Um, you could register for the conference. There's a link in the show notes. You can discount code our preach, 15% off. And um, you know, you'll save money on taking it. Uh, guys, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you guys. Take care of the rest of the day. Remember, you got one left on the planet. Why not try to do something? Cheers, everyone. Bye.